0: Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's sermon is based on the psalm we sang a few moments ago, Psalm 19. If you would like to follow along, I noticed that you have some pew Bibles and this is on page 783 of your pew Bibles, Psalm 19. You could also follow along on page 8 of your service folder. Dear fellow redeemed, when he got done tossing those cash boxes and driving that livestock out of the temple, what kind of mood was Jesus in? What expression do you think he had on his face? Did he feel sad that that circumstance had developed? Did he feel righteously angry? We know as a true human and in his divine nature, Jesus could feel emotions. I would like to suggest this morning that perhaps Jesus felt a positive emotion, like happiness or joy, after he finished cleansing the temple. After his adrenaline cooled and his blood pressure slowed down, Maybe he had even a smile on his face. He knew that this was God's will, and God had used him to accomplish that will, so why shouldn't he feel happy about it? Maybe you could even say that his face was beaming, beaming like the sun. Speaking of the sun, that's how Psalm 19 starts out. King David wrote this and made a couple of analogies to the sun. He said, It comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy. It celebrates like a champion who has run his race. David makes two comparisons for the sun. He says the sun is like a champion runner who is flaunting his victory, and the sun is like a newlywed groom who has just come out of the tent where he spent his wedding night night with his new bride. For both of those analogies, you might scratch your head a little and wonder, why did the Holy Spirit inspire comparisons like that? You've got this young man who has just finished consummating his marriage, and the day after, he walks out of what was essentially a bedroom with this knowing grin on his face. Does that really sound like the appropriate type of thing for the Holy Spirit to inspire in a sacred song of the Old Testament hymnal? And, and then what's with this runner after his athletic victory? The ancient Jews were not known for being Olympian athletes. They didn't bother themselves with questions like, how can I train for my next sporting competition? Or how can I pay for going to a sporting event? No, they had more practical questions like, how do I make sure that my crop comes in so I can make a living this year? Or how do I pay my taxes? At least with the young man who's beaming after his wedding night, At least there, you could say there's some God-pleasing things about that. For one thing, the ancient Jewish people knew that God would send the Savior of the world through their hereditary line. So it became a very big deal for them to have families and to have children and to get married because eventually that would produce the Savior. And still today, it is a God-pleasing thing when people... Organize themselves into marriages and when they have children. It's wonderful when we can enjoy the partnership of a spouse and all of the blessings that come from marriage. But what about this athlete who's flaunting his victory? How is that appropriate? It seems kind of plucky or cocky to picture this runner who's letting the whole crowd know that he is the best. But then again, it probably seemed plucky or a little bit cocky for a 33-year-old man to enter a well-established place of business to come into this temple where there are many much older authority figures and suddenly he starts tipping over the tables and spilling the cash and taking charge of the animals and kicking everybody out. We can't know for sure what kind of expression Jesus had on his face, but it seems safe to say that he found joy in doing God's will, and if he didn't beam like the sun or have a smile on his face, he at least felt satisfied that God's will had been accomplished. How does that runner with his race-winning serve his neighbor. You might think, well, okay, at least he's practicing good stewardship of his health, but winning a race and letting everybody know about that, it doesn't exactly feed hungry orphans. It doesn't clean up the crime on the streets. What practical purpose does it serve? It doesn't seem like a good example of humble servitude or modest practicality. God would have us look then at the stars and the galaxies in outer space and ask yourself, what practical purpose do do they serve? In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens tell about the glory of God. The expanse of the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Honestly, you can't find a whole lot of earthly use out of astronomy class. Yes, the sun warms us and it makes plants grow. The moon has something to do with the tide. And it used to be that travelers would use stars as their GPS. But today, what practical use can you find from it? You might argue, well, NASA has brought us great technological advancements and problem-solving skills. But that's not why we started the space race. We didn't go to the moon, because we said to ourselves, let's try to develop new technology and gain problem-solving skills. No, we went to the moon because it was there and it's beautiful. And it seemed to us like it was worth investigating. That's what people say about climbing mountains. Mountain climbers will say, I climbed it because it was there. And Even though David didn't have a a Hubble telescope, even though he didn't have an astronomy degree, he recognized that these cosmic galaxies and heavenly bodies, they make us want to learn more about them. They beg us to study them. And let's stop on that word beg for a minute. As soon as I say that the moon or a planet is begging us, That means that it is taking on a personality and it's speaking words. It's actually saying, find out more about me. Please investigate me. Research me. And this is exactly what David meant when he wrote about the stars. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they display knowledge. They do not speak. They say no words. Their voice is not heard. The stars don't give a TED talk. They don't talk in human grammar. They don't publish essays for us to read. But that doesn't mean they don't communicate with us. Verse 4 says, their voice goes out into all the earth and their word reaches the end of the world. At Shoreland Lutheran High School, this is what we try to pass along to the students in our classrooms. That God has control over all the fields of study, not just religion, but science and mathematics, music and art. And your faith is involved in all of those things as well. But as soon as we tell people that you can find messages from God embedded in the stars or the planets, we run into a little bit of difficulty. You see, humans are naturally sinful And I can't think of any better way to explain it than to point out the global warming debate. The drastic changes that we've had in temperatures here recently reminded me of a cold snap that devastated the state of Texas a few years back. My brother who lives down there actually had to shovel his driveway during the winter for once. Now, people can look at that that happened in Texas and come up with completely different conclusions about it. One side could say, well, see, this just disproves global warming because those are colder temperatures. And then another group of people could look at the exact same evidence and say, no, this just proves global warming because human interference in the climate is causing these drastic temperature changes. Now, my point is not to endorse one side or the other of the global warming debate. My point is simply to say that humans have a really hard time interpreting the messages that God sends us through the stars and nature and the cosmos. We always use it to bolster our own point of view or back up our own argument in a debate rather than listening to what God says. So God found another way to talk to us. He actually did use human grammar. He came down to this earth and spoke in a human language. He inspired his apostles to write down human words that we can understand. Listen to what David wrote in verses 7 through 11. He's describing the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. It gives wisdom to the inexperienced. His words are more desirable than gold, even better than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. God's word is very practical. It's so helpful. It can lift your spirits when you're in a bad mood, it can guide you away from poor decisions in life, it can give you a happy outlook on your day. But as a congregation that shows support for Shoreland Lutheran High School, I would like to point out just one of these practical uses for God's Word. It says that God's words are more desirable than gold, even better than much pure gold. By the gifts that St. John's has given to Shoreland in the past, by the students that you've enrolled there throughout our time together, you have shown that God's word is more valuable than money because this is what we are giving to our children who study on our campus. It reminds me of a man who died a few years back. He had two sons that he sent to a high school very similar to Shoreland, and his acquaintances and friends would wonder why he sent his sons to a private school when his tax dollars already paid for a public education. They even asked him, Tony, can you afford to send your children to that school? And his response was always, I think the better question is, can I afford not to give them a Lutheran education? Tony did not say that out of Lutheran brand loyalty or some kind of preference for higher standards of a private school. Tony said that as a sinner who recognized his Savior and wanted his sons better acquainted with that same Jesus. He knew well these words from Psalm 19 in verse 12, where we ask God, "...who can recognize his own errors? Declare me innocent of hidden sins." We don't even know how many times we have sinned against God already this morning. And yet, in Jesus, God declares all of your guilt off of you and onto Christ. In baptism, in the Lord's Supper, you are absolved and washed clean of all your sin. So I'd like to close now simply by pointing out one other thing from Psalm 19. You know that Jesus sang this song growing up in the household of Mary and Joseph. Whenever you read the Psalms, it's always nice to remember that Jesus would have spoken these words too. And and yet it seems odd that Jesus would have said something like verse 13, Restrain your servant also from deliberate sins. Do not let them rule over me. Then I will be blameless. Then I will be innocent of great rebellion. When Jesus died on the cross... He actually did have sin on him. He carried not his own guilt, but ours. And when he was buried and he resurrected from the dead, he left all those things that make you and I sinners, all the things that we have done wrong, he left them buried in his grave behind him so that he and us are now set free from all shame in God's sight. So now we can join with David and Christ And expect a yes answer from God when we pray what you find in verse 14. May the speech from my mouth and the thoughts in my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.